So good morning again. My name is Jordan, and I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Seoul. And I'm just excited to be opening up the scriptures with us uh, once again this week. And uh, what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking at some stories from the life of Jesus. In a few moments, we're going to look at three stories of his life. And interestingly enough, we're not just going to learn about Jesus and learn about who he is, but in the process, I think as we look at these stories, we can find out a whole lot about ourselves and who we are. And so before we get into that, I just want to make mention that we are going back to two Sunday gatherings beginning in the fall. And so, yeah, and so that's going to be, that's exciting, that's awesome, and we're, we're looking forward to that, and so we're going to be, you're going to be seeing some, uh, just some advertising out there, some things, uh, you'll probably see the hashtag, uh, sit one, serve one, we're just looking to rebuild our teams and our volunteer teams, and so if you're interested in getting involved on Sunday, we'd love to have you, and so there's lots of areas of need that we have, um, maybe you're into greeting, welcoming, coffee, maybe you work with children well in the nursery, so kids, young life, uh, we can use it. We want you to be a part of one of our teams. And so I'm just throwing that out there for now. But in September, we're going to be moving back to two. And uh, we're going to need some help. And so we look forward to having you join us in that. So let's get into our lesson today. Um, the authority of Jesus is what we're talking about. If we can get the slides up, that'd be great. Um, last week, I'll just quickly recap for a second. Last week, we talked about the cost of following Jesus. We talked about two guys and, um, who came to Jesus, and they expressed their desire to follow him. And Jesus, rather than sugarcoating what following him would look like, he gives them the truth that following him is going to require denying yourself. It's going to require putting him first. It's going to be a reordering of our agendas in order that we can fit his, and that Following Jesus has a cost, and that it's costly to follow him. And so I talked about the struggle when God's agenda and our agendas don't line up, and I asked whose agenda wins in your life when you get to that point. And so there will come a time for each one of us as Christians who've chosen to follow Jesus where our agenda might not necessarily be 100% what God had in mind, and we're going to have to make a choice, and we're going to have to choose in that moment whose agenda we're going to follow. And um, in a lot of ways, it's going to be very crystal clear to us because the Lord's going to lead us. He's going to speak to us by his spirit. And we're just going to know um, the decision that we have to make. But when we have to make those decisions to lay down our agendas, sometimes it can feel painful. How many of you recognize that? How, how many have been there before? Sometimes it feels like a bit of a death, like something's dying. Like the laying down of a dream that you had or some plans that you had or something that you wanted to do. Or maybe it means staying when you want to go. Maybe it means going when we, we, all you really want to do is stay. And it can be painful. But in that, what you will find is that as you choose to follow Jesus, as you lay down your agenda and embrace his agenda, in that moment, you are going to not only find out a bit about who you are, but you are really going to find out whose you are and whom you belong to. And so that's where we were last week. We were talking about the cost of following Jesus, but today we are talking about the authority of Jesus. And so I hope you believe in miracles, as the song just said, because we're going to look at some stories that talk about miracles. We're going to look at three stories, and within them we're going to see another defining moment um, that occurs. And so before we jump in fully, I thought I'd begin today with a thought about reading the scriptures. And here's the thought. As I read scripture, I don't read scripture as much as sometimes scripture reads me. I don't read the scriptures as much as sometimes the scriptures actually read me. And what do I mean by that? Well, I never just read the scriptures to finish. 
I don't think that was the intention. I don't think that's what God had in mind by leaving us the scriptures. But I think we read them because we recognize that within them there is life and there's power to change us and make us more like the author, more like Christ himself. And so sometimes as I read scripture, I find that scripture rattles me, it challenges me, it frustrates me, and many times it inspires me, and it brings me to change. But when I read the scriptures, I find out so much more about myself in the process. And I don't know if your experience has been the same. You feel all sorts of different emotions when you read scripture. Because yes, scripture will inform us. Scripture will help us to know more about God, but at the same time, it also exposes us, and it changes us, and it challenges us, because God's will for us isn't just that we would read the scriptures so that we can be informed, but the main reason that we read the scriptures is so that we are formed more into his likeness, and so as you read the scriptures, as we look at these stories today, I want to challenge us to put ourselves in the middle of them, and ask how we would react in these situations. Ask, what would you feel if you saw these things happening and allow it to speak to your heart. I think no matter where we're at today, one of these stories can speak to each one of us. And so just take what you will from the life lesson today. So Matthew chapter 8 and verses 23, we're going to start at. If you have a Bible, you can open it there, the phone, or it's on the screens as well. It says, Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. And suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And he replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Second story. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? And some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. In story three, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his, home, to his hometown, his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming, and knowing their thoughts, Jesus asked, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. 
and they praised God who had given such authority to man. And so we're continuing in our series, The Upside Down Kingdom, a study through the book of Matthew. And we are at these three different stories, which in some senses we think, whoa, that's a lot of stories. But in, in, in another sense, they really work together and they really flow together. And so let me begin by talking about the first story as we look into that. Um, the story about Jesus calming the storm. You see, Jesus had just done some amazing healings and miracles. That's the context. But afterwards, with all the excitement and the crowds building and growing around him, he decides that it's time to get in the boat and head over to a different area and continue on with what he needs to do. And as I was studying this past week, and as I was praying about how I could teach on three stories and keep it to less than three hours, and I'm not kidding, I realized that each of these stories does a few things. Each story tells us something about Jesus. And each of these stories can tell us something about ourselves. And each story definitely gives us something practical that we can ponder and that we can take home. And so that's going to build kind of our basis of how we look at these today. And so let's look at the first story where Jesus and his disciples, they're on a boat and they're heading off to minister in another location. This is surprising in and of itself because he'd had the crowds. People were gathering around him. Things were going awesome. And he's like, all right, guys, jump in the boat. We're out of here. And I don't know about you, but, you know, in, in my mind, if I had those kind of crowds, I might stick around for a little bit longer. But all of a sudden, as they're on this boat, a massive storm hits, and the disciples are afraid, and they're most likely worried for their safety. And the Greek word seismos is used to describe what kind of storm this was. And that word for storm here is literally the English word that we use to describe an earthquake. Now, that's the kind of storm that's happening here. It's not just some minor, you know, spitting of rain. It's not like, you know, you're seeing a few waves or something. Like, we're talking, this is dangerous. This is getting scary. It wasn't just some rain and wind, but, you know, it's literally right out of that movie, A Perfect Storm, and maybe even worse, things weren't necessarily looking good. And so the disciples are afraid, and they're looking to Jesus, who seems to be sleeping through the whole thing. And they wake him up, and they say, Lord, please save us. We're in danger here. And Jesus gets up and asks them, where's their faith? And he asks them why they're afraid. And he speaks to the wind and the waves, and all of a sudden, things are calm again. What for one minute looked like disaster all of a sudden results in peace. What in one moment looked like it would have enormous consequences for everyone in the boat is all of a sudden at rest and the disciples are sitting there amazed at how Jesus and his authority was able to calm that storm. Put yourself in that story. Imagine what kind of emotions you'd be feeling as you saw the storm move in and you knew, uh-oh, if that hits us, we are in trouble. And eventually it comes in on the waters and you're sitting there in this boat, right? Like I, I could be, you know, on a, north, on, on a Manitoba lake when a minor storm comes in and I'm getting half worried. And I could just imagine what these people were going through. And we could just be ignorant and chalk this up to another lack of faith moment for those smooth disciples. You know, they always seem to, you know, get afraid. They always seem to have weak faith in these things. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, we'd probably recognize that in many ways we probably would have ex reacted the exact same way. And we probably would have been afraid. And we probably would have been wondering, why is Jesus sleeping? Look what's happening here. And so here's a couple thoughts I think we get from this story. First of all, the thought that you never lose God's presence even in the storm. 
You never lose God's presence in the storm. Even though things weren't looking good, Jesus was still very present among the disciples in the boat. I don't know if you're like me, but when, when you go through tough times or difficult times, you may eventually think to yourself, is God even here? God, where are you? Things just aren't good. It seems like you're miles and miles and miles and miles away in this moment. And these are natural human thoughts. These are normal um, emotions and things to feel, I believe, as we go through stuff. But this story, I believe, affirms to us that even in the midst of storms, we could be assured that God's presence, that Jesus, is still there. And he's still with us. And I think part of the problem for us is, is I believe that a lot of us think that if I'm with Jesus, then there shouldn't even be a storm. Anyone ever heard that kind of teaching before? It's that teaching and, you know, preaching that unfortunately we've heard a lot, um, that if you give your life to God, you, ex you should expect to be rich. You should expect to be problem-free. You should expect to be trouble-free. You should expect that you won't have any more problems, that life is going to be rosy. Anyone ever heard that type of preaching before? Anyone ever found that that's just not true? That's just not the case? I believe a lot of people think that if I'm with Jesus, that there shouldn't be a storm. And yet anyone who has chosen to follow Christ knows that that isn't the case. And so I gave my life to Christ. Therefore, you know, it should be smooth sailing for the rest of my life. It's simply not true. You see, Jesus said things like this. He said, in this world, we would experience trouble. But he followed it up with a word of comfort by saying, to take heart because he has overcome the world. Amen. And there is nothing that can take us out of the presence of God. Nothing that can separate us from God's love. I remember speaking to a bunch of college students in Saskatoon at their grad. Um, I think it was three, three years ago. And I remember not knowing what to speak to these students and thinking, I just graduated myself seven years ago. I don't know why they asked me. They must have been pretty tough up for a speaker that day, right? But I remember talking to them. The only thing I felt God saying to me was let them know that I'm with them. Let them know that my presence is with them. Let them know that regardless of what we do, what we put our hands to, where we minister, um, whatever we're going through, that my presence, that I am with those who follow me. Romans chapter 8 and verse 35 says it like this. It says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? All trouble or hardship, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so God's presence is with us even when things are less than ideal for us. The author of life, the one who has authority even over the elements, even over nature, is with me, is with you. And we can sense his strength and his peace and his power and his comfort simply because he's with us. And so my encouragement is this. When we look at this story, there's, there's some, some take-homes for us. One of the practical things is to never let the presence of a storm have you doubt the presence of God. Have you doubt that God's with you? In Hebrews 13 and verse 5, 
we read these words, I will never leave you or forsake you. We need to personalize that and, and, and make that perhaps a life verse for ourselves that wherever we go, he's with us. God has promised to be with us. You know, some of the last words that Jesus said to his disciples to comfort and assure them was, Behold, I am with you always till the very end of the age. Another thought that we get from this story when they're on the water is that Jesus asks questions but still comes to the aid of his friends. Jesus asks questions, but still comes to the aid of his friends. Maybe what we need to do at this point in our life is just to pull back, refocus, spend some time resting with God. Because that question, do you still have no faith? Jesus poses that question to the disciples. And faith is simply trust. It's trusting in Jesus, trusting in who Jesus says he is, and trusting that Jesus can do what he says he can do. If we hear Jesus in this portion of Scripture um, coming down on the disciples and saying to them, you know, seriously, you guys, what's wrong with you losers? What is happening here? Like, haven't you just seen what happened back there? You guys, you're just, you don't, ah. And if, we, if this is what we hear Jesus saying to these disciples when we read this text, then I believe it actually says more about our personal perceptions of God and Jesus than it does about the words that were actually recorded here in the story. It might say more about how we see God and how we feel God reacts to us than what we read here. Because it's far more likely that Jesus is simply saying this. He's simply asking his disciples, why are you afraid? After what we've talked about the last few days, after what you've witnessed, all the miracles and all the moments you got to experience with me, don't you know that I can be trusted? And I believe just like Jesus often spoke calmly, he spoke that with calm, calmness and assurance as he spoke to his disciples. You see, it's early in this journey for the disciples, and while they're trying to process all about Jesus, they find themselves in this giant storm, and they fear for their safety, and yet they just saw Jesus act in such amazing ways just hours earlier. Are we ever like that? How many times in our lives do we experience something difficult and we forget the ways in which Jesus has acted in our own lives before? Or how he's acted in the lives of those close to us? Do we ever take time to, just to ponder the amazing things that God's done in our hearts and in our lives and in our situations? And so when we read this story, we can't help but ponder the question, what are the storms in our lives? What are we facing that's causing difficulty? You know, for some of us, the storms might, might, might take place in our workplaces. I don't know. Maybe we're experiencing this in our workplace. Maybe we, maybe we have too much on our list, our to-do list, than we have time for. Maybe it's our relationships with others, with our employer, with our employees, with our, the people we work with. Maybe that's a storm for us. I don't know. Perhaps for us, storms is finances. Maybe the bills are just getting out of control. You know, how I'm going to make it. You know, there's a huge debt load. We worry about the future. Maybe financially, we feel like we're in a storm in our life. Maybe it has to do with relationships. You know, there's something happening between us and our spouse, and it's not good. You know, it's, it, it, it's hurting us, and in turn, it's affecting other people. It's pouring out into others. Sometimes it's our relationship with our parents or our kids or with siblings or with friends. For some of us, maybe it's the absence of relationships. Maybe we so desperately crave a healthy relationship that that feels like a storm for us right now. Storms come in all different ways. Maybe it's illness. 
Maybe it's a physical condition. Maybe it's we can't do what we used to do. Perhaps it's emotional. Perhaps it's mental health. There's all sorts of storms that come in our lives. The question is not simply, though, why do I have a storm? But the question is, what do I do when the storm is there? And who do I turn to? And I think that's what this, this portion is teaching us, that we can turn to Jesus when the storms of lives come. Who do you say Jesus is when the storm hits? This is what this story, I believe, is asking of us. This story is interesting because in it we see two cardinal doctrines of the church. We see Jesus' you know, humanity because he sleeps. He's sleeping through this whole thing. But we also see his true deity because he commands the winds and the waves and they listen. And I'm not going to stand up here and talk about that when storms come, you know, I have it all together and I get it all right every time and it's just easy and, you know, happy, joy, joy. Storms are difficult. Storms are tough. They take a lot out of us, but we can and need to turn to Jesus when they come. Amen? I think this story um, reveals that, you know, we're, we, we, as humans, we're prone to doubt, we're prone to worry, that we are indeed at times weak in faith. Even after all we've seen God has done, we could still have these moments. But the story also reveals about Jesus that he indeed has authority over the elements and over nature. And he is not in lack for anything. And so here's the take-home from this story. Faith is of great importance in the gospel, but the always deeper fact is that no matter how weak our faith is or how unworthy our approach is, Jesus helps us. Jesus is near. Jesus' grace is greater than anything that we might lack ourselves. And even when we are weak, even when we're doubting, even when we're unsure of everything, he still walks with us and he's still very much our helper. Let's talk a little bit about this second story. Where Jesus restores two demon-possessed men. Now this one, I'm telling you, has always been one of those stories that's been like, you know, whoa, that, that's an intense moment. You see, upon arrival to the city of Gadara, which was a pagan city and territory, I want to make that clear as we start there are, they are in some new terrain here, if you will. They're going into new territories, into new places, into new experiences. And Jesus and the disciples are immediately confronted by two people that this city has spent most of their time avoiding, staying away from, and cautioning against, right? The scriptures describe them as two men possessed by demons that were so violent that people wouldn't even dare pass by them. These two men were well-known in the community. Like, you just didn't go their way. You didn't walk down the path where you knew they were going to be staying. You avoided it. I remember as a, as a, I guess I was probably in grade six, so I guess, I don't know, elementary school, I used to go over to my friend Andrew's house, and one of our favorite things to do in the winter in Thompson is you play road hockey in the driveway, and in winter you pull out the basketball net. And I remember next door to him there was this German shepherd, and I'll never forget his name. His name was Jake, right? And there was this German shepherd, and no offense to Jake's here today, especially Jake Peters, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm not saying anything here. But there was this German shepherd next door named Jake, and I remember when his owners were out there, Jake was like the nicest dog you'd ever see. He'd come and, you know, bark, and he was happy, and he was jumping around, and it was just tons of fun. But as soon as the owners went back in the house, it's like Jake just totally put on another mask, and it was a whole new dog. And I remember once um, our basketball went over into that driveway, and so I thought, well, 
Jake's there. He's kind of a scary-looking dog, but he's a nice dog. And I went in there, and I remember grabbing the basketball and making my way back to the court, and all of a sudden, I knew something was chasing me, right? You know that feeling when you know that something's right behind you, and half the reason you know it is because there's a tear in your shirt, and something's pulling onto it, right? And someone's trying to bite you, and he was trying to bite me, and he was just attacking me. And I remember from that moment on, I decided this dog can't be trusted. I'm not even going to go near this dog anymore, right? You know, I like my shirts. You know, but, you know, I don't want to get hurt, right? And I avoided Jake at all costs, much in the way as I avoided this German shepherd because I knew it was dangerous. I knew that, you know, if I went near him, there was a chance I was going to get bite or perhaps lose my shirt that day. You see, these people in this city avoided these two men because they were dangerous and they were out of control. And no one dared go near them. You would keep your distance. You would stay far enough away so that you never really ever had to encounter these two. And these men, or maybe I should say what is in these men, begin to open dialogue with Jesus as they seem to recognize him. And they ask if he has come here to torture them. And why has he come so early? And if so, if that's what he's come for, they ask Jesus, could Jesus drive them into the herd of pigs that was nearby? Pretty unusual request. And so Jesus says one word. He says, go. That's all he says. You know, he says, go. And all the demons head into the pigs and immediately head into the lake nearby and drown themselves. And it's good for us to note here that Jesus simply said, go. He didn't shout. doesn't say he shout. He didn't necessarily get loud. His words weren't many. It's not like he made a spectacle out of this, but he simply and firmly said the word go, and it was done. It was done with authority. And we have to caution ourselves sometimes when we think about these things. It's not the fervor with which the word was said that made it effective, but rather it lied in the power of the one saying it in this case, and that was Jesus. You know, it's easy to associate these things with, like, you know, intense moments and loud yelling, but it just says, he says, go. One word, go. And they went. And the result of this story and you read more about this in Mark and Luke's account of the same story in their Gospels. But the result of this story is that the men are all of a sudden healed, and they're all of a sudden in their right state of mind, and the demons have left them. Although this story seems so different than the previous story, there are some parallels here. N.T. Wright says it like this. He said, this story is a more vivid version of the previous one, the stilling of the storm. Think of the wild sea with wind and waves doing their worst. Now turn that into a human being with the wind and waves inside of them. And that's what we see happening here. This is what these two men were experiencing. And they were healed, which you think would result in some cheers and some happiness and some rejoicing. But what we see from the people of the city is fear. And there's this urgent pleading for Jesus to leave them. Please just leave our town. And I... Us sitting there reading it are thinking, why would you want him to leave? He's done an amazing thing. You guys used to not be able to walk that way to the store. Now you know you could take the shortcut, right? You can get there quicker. These guys are in their right state of mind. But before we even begin to criticize them, we are left wondering why they are so upset at Jesus and this event. One thing that we need to keep in mind is that for these people, pigs are the herdsman's livelihood. This was a pagan area where pigs were fair game. And this was how they made their money. This was their resources. This was their bread maker, if you will. This was part of the economy, these pigs. 
And so it's not unreasonable to think that the people of the city began thinking in this, a few more exorcisms like this, and it's literally going to wipe out the city's economy if this keeps happening. If this keeps happening, we're going to lose our livelihood. We're going to lose what makes us money. And so this is definitely one of the reasons why the people are upset here. These things that Jesus are doing, you know, sure, it worked out great for those two guys, but for the rest of us, we just lost out big on this one. Another reason could be the shock and awe of what Jesus had just done. Think about that. To see these two guys, you know, that no one dare looked at or crossed their paths back in their right minds and this whole, you know, scenario play out with the pigs. I'm not going to lie to you. That'd be a little spooky to probably observe something like that. But either way, Jesus demonstrates his power to his disciples and he heals two men. And what we learn about ourselves in this passage is that we don't always understand or get the ways of God. And that's okay. You see, Jesus' first priority here is people, not property, not possessions, not anything else, but he cares about people. Frederick Dale Bruner says this. He says, after reading this story, we are to ask whether the city values property more than persons, economics over human beings, and the pigs more than the rehabilitation of their townsmen. You see, what we learn about Jesus here in this story is that Jesus has authority over spiritual forces. At his name, we all bow and surrender, and even the demons did. And so our take-home here is, do we value people the way Jesus does? Are we able to put people above ourselves as he did? And finally, let's move into this third story this morning. It's a story of Jesus forgiving and healing a paralyzed man. And so here we have a story of some good friends, and I mean that, okay? Good friends who saw that their friend had a very visible need, and they were desperate to get him to Jesus. And there's a lesson here in this story about good community and the need to surround ourselves with people who care about us, help us, are there for us regardless of the circumstances. And we're not going to travel down that path this morning, but let it be said that this gentleman who is being carried on a mat to Jesus, to see Jesus, has surrounded himself with good people in his life, people who care, people who think it's important enough to take him and place him in front of Jesus. And so in this portion, we're going to see a dilemma because what's happening in this story is the audience has an opportunity to either embrace the truth here and be changed by it, or to reject the truth and walk away from it and continue to walk in darkness. In these moments, we can embrace what could be an uncomfortable truth that may require us to change or reprioritize our lives, or we can choose to live in darkness. And what I mean by darkness is, is, is knowing the truth, seeing the light, and yet still choosing to reject that good path and retreating to what we're used to. And here is the truth in this story right off the hop. I'm going to give, give it to you before we even get into it, and it's this. Oftentimes, our felt need is not our deepest need. Oftentimes, our pressing need is not our primary need. Oftentimes, the thing that we want the most is not the thing that we need the most. And because of the world we live in, we often lose sight of what our real need is. We can get so confused about this, and we can put so many things ahead of what's actually important. You see, and Jesus is teaching here in someone's house, and the people are crowding around him and gathered in this home, and there's this paralytic. A paralytic was a man who was paralyzed and couldn't walk. 
And I know that Jesus is preaching in a home here because Mark and Luke record it, and Matthew doesn't seem to include that detail. Why does he leave it out? Well, I think Matthew leaves it out because Matthew's gospel always puts the focus on Jesus, as where Mark and Luke often included many more comments about his followers and other people involved in the stories. And so to fully understand what is happening here, we should refer to the other two accounts of this story. And so let's look at Mark's uh, account just at the beginning here to give us a little more context in Mark chapter 2. It says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard he had come home. Back home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. And some men, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Frederick Dale Bruner, in regards to this, says this in this quote. He says, Matthew's interest, you can move, there it is, is, is more in what Jesus does than in what believers do. Thus, Matthew drops all colorful expressions of faith, points simply to faith's presence, and spotlights the authoritative Christ. Yet, without Mark's details, we would be the poorer. They tell us that faith is bold, important, insistent, and sometimes seemingly indifferent to social consequences. De-roofing is antisocial, in case you, know, you were wondering about that. Faith lives under one great compulsion to get into the presence of Jesus. I like that. And so the word that comes to mind here when we look at the actions taken to get their friend in front of Jesus, the word that I think of is the word desperation. Mark and Luke in telling the same story both mention the fact that these men made holes in the roof of the home and lowered him through so that they can get Jesus' attention. One commentator referred to them as the roof smashers. You know, we should almost make our own little brand of characters for these guys, but they literally smashed a hole in the roof. That's how important they felt it was to get their friend to Jesus. And it's obvious why these guys brought their friend to Jesus. They're not there for the sermon. They're not there for the guidance. They're not there for good teaching. Everybody in that room knows why they're there. And that's why Jesus takes the opportunity to shine an intense but difficult light on the situation. And this truth comes from out of the blue. It's something you don't expect. These guys are thinking, if we can just get him to Jesus and hoist him down, you know, we won't, you know, if we just get him to Jesus and hoist him down, Jesus is going to take care of him. He's going to heal him. He's going to be able to walk again. Things are going to be right. In Matthew 9, 2, Jesus says an unusual thing. He sees this guy right in front of them, and he sees the faith, and he says these words. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And people in the room are like, probably, well, that's just great, isn't it? You know, we weren't exactly coming here to get sins forgiven. But the reason that we went through all this trouble was so that we could have our friend healed, that he could walk again. You know, he's on a mat. We, you know, we dug a hole in the roof, right? We're not here for forgiveness necessarily, but what we're here for is a miracle. And Jesus says to them, good news, I see your faith, I see your desperation, I see your fear, I see your situation, and good news, your sins are forgiven. Think about it. For the guys who worked so hard to get their friend over to the miracle maker, this could come off as a bit of a letdown, could it not? 
At the onset, this can come off as a bit of a letdown. You know, breaking a hole in the roof, we literally had one letdown. You know, this is an even bigger letdown probably for people in the room emotionally because I'm sure what they expected that day was a miracle for their friend not to hear immediately that his sins are forgiven. And there's another group of people in the room, some religious leaders, the religious teachers, the scribes. And not only are they probably taken back by some of the insensitivity here of men looking for their friend's healing, but they're blown away and they're angered by the fact that a man has just said that he can forgive another man's sins. And the teachers of the law were the experts of their days. If you want to know how to get your sins forgiven, you'd go to them. And they'd show you, and you know, they would take you through the temple system of sacrifice. They'd show you how to atone for sins. And in the minds of these religious teachers, sin is not something that this man can handle, but there's a process that they have to go through if they want the forgiveness of their sins. In Matthew chapter 9, 3, we read these words. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming, or this man is blaspheming, because you cannot announce that his sins are forgiven. Getting your sins forgiven means waiting in line, and it's expensive. And you've got to go buy an animal. And then you've got to go to the temple, which may require you know, some packing of your bags, some journeying. It may take some time to get there. You've got to make an appointment. You've got to stand in line. It requires that you wait and you wait and you wait. And you, you make sure your ceremonial clean. You have to jump through all sorts of hoops before you get there. And then when you finally get up to your turn, the priest takes your animal, whatever you bought. Maybe it was a lamb. Maybe it was a goat. Maybe you, know, you were sure on cash. Maybe it was a pigeon, right? And he slaughters it. And it's gross, and it's bloody, and he gets blood on him, blood on the altar. Maybe some blood gets on you. And then the priest says some words, and then all of a sudden, your sins are forgiven. And that was the process that was known by the people of this day. But it is only temporary. Because at some point later, you are going to sin again, probably in two hours. You know, that's just a minor bet, right? But at some point later, you're going to have to buy yourself another goat or another lamb or another pigeon, and you're going to have to go through the same process over and over and over. And forgiveness in these days was complicated. It was costly. You had to wait in line. And the teachers of the law thought, if you want to accomplish this, you have to come through us you see, the fact that people sinned was the best job security ever for these guys. Because you've got to know the law to get forgiven. That's just what we do. That was the culture. That was the mindset of the time. And so they're annoyed and they're outraged at Jesus in this moment because you can't just announce in some moment to some stranger that you know absolutely nothing about that his sins are forgiven. Because it's way more complicated than that. And they're muttering to themselves and they're thinking, this guy's blaspheming. What is he saying? And besides that, there's even more. Why does this fellow talk like that? Who can forgive sins? You see, you can't forgive someone's sins that they didn't commit against you. I guess, you know, if this guy sinned against Jesus, then maybe relationally, you know, he could have forgiven him of the sin that was committed against him relationally. But you can't just blanket forgive him of sins that, that he's committed against other people. The only person that could forgive him of the sins that he committed against other people is God. And so the religious teachers are sitting there looking at Jesus and thinking, who do you think you are? You see, the very fact that Jesus was saying he, he could forgive this man's sins meant that he was equating himself with God. 
It's exactly what he was doing. And this all would have ran through their minds. And they would have been furious, wondering, who do you think you are, Jesus? And perhaps this is why C.S. Lewis once commented very strongly on the claims of Christ when he wrote these words in his classic book, Mere Christianity. Do you want to throw a slide up? I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the heel with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse, but a good moral teacher, he has not left that option open to us. And so this is the territory that we enter here, and Jesus claims to forgive sin in this passage. Either he was right, or, you know, Lewis finishes the other side of that for us today. And so at this point, you've got one group that's disappointed. You know, they're probably thinking they're going to see a miracle. And you've got one side that's upset, right? The religious teachers are angry because, you know, Jesus has claimed something here that only God has the authority to claim. And I think about this, you know, this whole thing's brilliant. Nobody could have made, made this up. Everything, everyone is in tune to Jesus here. They're either angry or disappointed. And in Matthew 9, 4, Jesus says to them, knowing their thoughts, he says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Jesus is saying to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? And Jesus is showing, I know why you are I know why they cut a hole in the roof. I know why this is happening. I know his felt need. I know what he thinks is urgent to him. I know what he feels is pressing at the time. I know why he's here. I'm not blind to the situation. Jesus knew that this guy needed physical healing. It's not like this was just lost in the facts, but Jesus knows that his pressing need in that moment to be healed is not his primary need. That what's urgent to him is not really what's most important to him. That his felt need in that moment is not really his deepest need. That what he wants the most isn't really what he needs the most right now. And Jesus is saying, I have addressed his primary need. I have addressed what's really most urgent. I have addressed his deepest need. And nobody seems to really appreciate it. I've forgiven him of his sins. Before he needed healing, before he needed anything else, what he really needed was to have his sins forgiven. And nobody in the room probably seemed to appreciate it in the moment because, you know, oftentimes we're blind to this very, very important truth. You know, and I was thinking about this this past week. We all have our wish lists. We all have our things that we want to do or that we want to accomplish or things that we think are so important to have in our lives. And here's a couple of them, right? Um, we'd probably put wealth up there. You know, everyone wants to be financially secure. We value that. We'd probably put a good career and job. Everyone wants to be fulfilled in what they're doing. Health, we all want to be in good health and fame and appreciation. I threw on the list because each one of us probably wants to be appreciated or have some level of success in knowing that people care for us. And at times, each of these things is very important to us, and sometimes they're very legitimate needs. Sometimes we really do need the rent paid. Sometimes we really could use a friend. Sometimes we really could use healing. Sometimes we really could use someone listening and paying attention to us. 
But it's interesting because if we were to look at our to-do lists and our wish lists, if every one of us were to make one of these lists, we may see things like wealth and provision and health and companionship and a career and, you know, all sorts of things on that list. But the one thing that we probably wouldn't necessarily see on our list if we were to make these lists today is would we write the word forgiveness? Would that make our list of things that we most need? Things that we're desperate for in our lives, things that we have to have. If you were to make a list of your greatest needs, this between you and God now, would forgiveness have made the list? And sometimes we don't even think that much about how much we need forgiveness. And a big part is because it's not really a felt need. No one wakes up in the morning, you know, with a stuffed nose, right, and a sore throat and thinks to themselves, oh, I just need forgiveness today, right? You know, it's, it's not really something that you feel per se physically. Forgiveness doesn't feel urgent when we think of our needs and make our lists. And this is Jesus' point here, because everyone's gathered around. Everyone wants to see a miracle. And if this guy gets healed and can walk, then maybe, you know, he gets some other stuff on his list back. Maybe he gets wealth. Maybe he gets his job back. Maybe he gets some accolades. Who knows? But forgiveness of sins is not necessarily probably what people had in mind that day. And so do we ever make light ourselves of forgiveness? as a pressing need for ourselves. I'll be honest, I don't always think about it as a big need. But as we begin to see as God sees, forgiveness not only goes on the list, but forgiveness needs to be at the top of our lists. And Jesus says, when you see as I see, you will begin to see that your primary need is forgiveness. The most urgent thing is forgiveness. What you need at your deepest level is forgiveness. Forgiveness for everything that stands between you and God to be removed so that you connect with him in this life, but also so that you can connect with him forever. And in verse 6 of Matthew, we hear Jesus say, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he heals him. And they see the healing happen there. And why does he use the word authority? I think he uses the word authority is because for him to say this to this man is not only to say that he has authority to remove sins, but also he has the authority to remove the consequences of sin and that separation of God and the fallen world that we live in. And so Jesus shows his authority over sin. He not only forgives this man, but he gives him his physical healing. And Jesus heals physically to demonstrate that he could also heal people spiritually. And this amazed everyone in the room, and they thought, we've never seen anything like this. Wow. And the funny thing here is, is that I think that most people likely celebrated the temporary and may not even caught on to the eternal thing that just happened in the room. Because they're like us. We have our lists, we have our needs and importance, and there's certain things that we focus on, and other things that we forget or don't think about that much. But I believe a defining moment happens in our lives, friends when we recognize that our real issue is an eternal issue. Our greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins and to be right with our Father in heaven. A defining moment happens when we recognize that Jesus and Jesus alone has authority to forgive sin. You see, what do we learn about us in this story? Here's what I think we learn. We learn that we don't always know what's best for ourselves and that we can still miss it, even when Jesus gives us what we most need. What do we learn about Jesus in this story? Well, we learn that he does, in fact, have authority over sin, that he came down so that we could be forgiven to meet our greatest need and reconcile us back in a relationship with the Father. 
And Jesus in these stories demonstrates his authority over nature, over the elements, over the spiritual forces that come at him. And here in this story, he demonstrates his authority over sin. And so here's the take home for us. Do we ever forget about the forgiveness that we've received? Does it ever become common in our lives? Are we ever guilty of making light of the fact that more than anything in this world, what we truly need is to know that we've been made right in our relationship with God? That it's been restored and that we are indeed forgiven people. Frederick Dale Bruner says this here. He says, it's a frequent error of evangelical communities to believe that the message of forgiveness is only for unbelievers. But this is too limited. The gospel of forgiveness is weekly and daily for believers too because believers too contract guilt and guilt's paralysis. Was forgiveness just a one-time transaction for you? Or do you regularly go back and ponder the forgiveness that you've received from Jesus daily because of his great love for you? Because once we do get it, forgiveness and grace doesn't just encourage us to sit around and simply enjoy the blessings. I don't believe that for a second. But God's grace, his forgiveness empowers us and it moves us to live for him and to bring others to him so that they too may have their greatest need met as well. Let me read a few more thoughts from Bruner, paraphrasing some, some of Luther's thoughts here in his commentary. He said, one other fact should be highlighted. Forgiveness of sins. You can go to the next slide. Forgiveness of sins and the ability to move are interchangeable. By saying one, Jesus grants the other. Forgiveness of sins is practically speaking the engine of Christian movement. When in Jesus' name we preach and grant forgiveness of sins, we're also empowering people. Forgiving, forgiving is empowering. Forgiveness, when experienced and felt, does move us into action. Forgiveness truly frames our future as Christians. And so, because of what Jesus has done for us, in light of him meeting our greatest need, we also become people who desire to see others experience that grace in their lives as well. We desperately want to bring people to Jesus. We desperately want to see people experience his presence. But I have another question. Maybe you've come here today and this whole church thing's new to you. And you're new to this whole situation. You, and, and you, maybe this is something you've struggled with. Maybe this is something you're hearing for the first time. Do you perhaps need to know that your sins are forgiven this morning in Christ? Maybe you've never asked God to forgive you of your greatest need, of your sin, of falling short, and you want to be reconciled to your Father in heaven. Not, nobody looking around, eyes closed. Is there anyone here today that you would maybe raise your hand and say, I need to experience the forgiveness of my sins today. Anyone? Yeah? Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to ask everyone just to join me in a prayer. Just repeat these words after me, whether you've been a Christian for many years. Maybe this will be your first time saying this prayer, if you've put your hand up. But let's pray these prayers to, prayer together, and let's ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins. So repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I'm praying this prayer 
because I know that I have done wrong by living without you. I am sorry, and I trust that you will forgive me. I accept your love and grace for me and ask that you would be my Lord. Help me believe in you and love you every day. And help me to show the world what you are like and how great your love is. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that for the first time today, I'm excited about that. And your sin is forgiven. And we just read about that's what Jesus has come to do. And if that was you, I want to encourage you after the gathering, if, you, if, if, if it's cool by you, I want to invite you just to come up here and meet with me and uh, we could chat about that a little bit more. Or, um, yeah, I'd just love to chat with the person you come with. Um, you know, that's an amazing decision that you just made. And Jesus has forgiven us today. And I want each one of us here, my hope is that we leave here today encouraged that his presence never leaves us, like we talked about in the first story, that he is the one with authority, but that he has forgiven us all so much. And I want us to ponder that and allow that to motivate us as we go about this week. Is that cool? Let's take that with us and leave here today encouraged and built up as people who have indeed been forgiven. And so I'll get everyone to stand, and I'm just going to pray for us quick. Father, just thank you for this morning. Thank you for your love and your word. I pray that it would just do what it is intended to do in each one of our hearts and lives. Walk with us this week, and may each one of us leave this place knowing that we are forgiven in you. And thank you so much for your grace today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to leave us with a blessing this morning. In ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands. And so if you'd like to receive a blessing, extend your hands as well. Here it is. May the beauty of God be reflected in your eyes. May the love of God be reflected in your hands. May the wisdom of God be reflected in your words and the knowledge of God flow from your heart that all might see and in seeing also believe. As forgiven people, be blessed this week. Amen. God bless. Have a great week. We'll see you all next week. Enjoy.